This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, experts in Colorado are growing increasingly concerned about the impacts of our changing climate. This year in particular, everyone in Colorado is kind of standing with their hair on end thinking, are we going to be in a real serious drought next year? Just ahead, we'll hear about the future of water in the drought-stricken West and how wildfires could affect the future of a top Colorado cash crop. All that and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Colorado's COVID-19 vaccination effort enters a new phase on Friday when anyone 16 and older can sign up to get it. Governor Jared Polis made the announcement earlier this week, noting that older Coloradans and frontline workers will still be prioritized. Overall, the number of active COVID-19 outbreaks has dropped statewide. And that's something many Colorado areas that rely on tourism were thinking about as they prepared for an influx of spring break visitors. One city in particular that's well known for its stunning scenery and Old West charm found a creative way to remind visitors that safety protocols are still in effect. Here with more on Durango's approach is Ray Ellen Bichelle, who wrote about this for Kaiser Health News. Ray, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As spring break kicked off around the country, it was pretty hard to miss the images of tons of college students partying in places like Miami Beach. Clearly, a lot of cities and towns here have wanted to avoid those types of crowds and the reckless behavior. In Durango, a consortium of tourism officials and local business owners decided to take kind of a unique approach to remind visitors to enjoy responsibly. What did they do? Well, first, they were talking about hiring some private security guards. This is what Breckenridge has done over spring break. They hired a security firm called 5D Shield to have a couple people patrol the sort of main walking area and remind people to put their masks on. But in the process of discussing this option in Durango, Rachel Brown with their uh, with their tourism office said, well, you know, she was kind of joking. She was like, what if we get some Old West actors instead of security guards? And it turns out everyone really liked the idea. So they rolled with it. It also happened to be a lot cheaper than private security guards. So there was that added benefit. And so what they did is they uh, they hired a group of actors. It's primarily two people, but it is a larger group if they if they need more backup. And they dress up in these Old West outfits and walk around the the main walkable, you know, pedestrian area outside of restaurants and bars and shops. And they're there looking like a saloon owner and a U.S. marshal slash cowboy telling people to please put their masks on. And if people don't have their masks, they will give them a free one that says I heart Durango on it. That just sounds like such a perfect solution. I know a lot of visitors come to Colorado from states like Texas, which basically dropped its mask requirements and reopened pretty much everything a few weeks ago. Was that a concern here about where tourists were coming from and are health officials tracking these these visitor numbers? Yes, they are tracking the visitor numbers. And the way they're doing that is they've got all this cell phone data so they can see where cell phones are coming from and how active they are in their community. And what that has shown is that in La Plata County, where Durango is, cell phone data, this is, you know, numbers analyzed by the health department there. But they show that from the first week of March to the third week of March, so from not spring break to spring break, cell phones belonging to non-residents went from 15% of all cell phones to 40% of all cell phones. And most of those were coming from Texas and Oklahoma. And this was kind of concerning to 
to some businesses, it was also concerning to some of the health officials because, um, like you mentioned, the states have taken very different approaches to things like mask mandates. And we've seen a lot of changes just over the last few weeks, you know, with Texas revoking its mask mandate right before spring break travelers would arrive. And on top of that, the leader of the health department there in La Plata County or in that area, she said, you know, we're we're starting to see an uptick, a new uptick in cases. And that they really worried that, you know, a bunch of spring break travel could mean that an uptick would turn into something worse that could then lead uh, schools to to shut down again. And, you know, there was a concern there, too. It wasn't just about what will tourists bring, but also what will our residents bring back while they go on their spring breaks, too. But, you know, the conversations I was having, those were about um, about the focus on the visitors. Well, you mentioned that Durango considered hiring private security to, to walk yeah. around and kind of remind people to wear their masks, but they opted for this fun approach. Instead, I'm wondering how it's been going over with people. Well, there's not, you know, there's not like uh, data or anything that you can compare quantitatively, but qualitatively, from what I hear, it's going pretty well. The actors can call the police department if something gets out of hand. They haven't had to do that at all. Um, so that seems like a good sign. And then the other thing that I've heard from from Visit Durango is that people seem to be responding pretty well to it. A lot of resort towns in the mountains basically closed themselves off entirely from visitors during the earlier months of the pandemic last year. This spring has to feel like more of a bright spot in economic terms. Do you have a sense of how it's been for these areas opening back up? I I think it is more of a bright spot from what I've heard from a few of these counties. A year ago last year, things were not looking good. We had um, mountain communities really battening the hatches in a lot of ways. Um, so San Juan County, which is just a little bit north of where Durango is, there the sheriff was threatening to fine and tow cars with out-of-county out of license plates. They didn't do that in the end, but they were threatening. Um, and then you also had Gunnison County, which banned visitors during last year's spring break, which was which was a big deal. I mean, if you're a county or a city that relies on tourism as your industry, shutting down during spring break is not good. But interestingly, a spokesperson with Gunnison County said that they've been doing better in the last few months in terms of um, tourism than they were doing even before the pandemic. So it does seem like things are rebounding. Ray Ellen Bichelle is a reporter with Kaiser Health News. You'll find this story at our website, KUNC.org. Ray, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Erin. In a press conference a little over a year ago, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced the closure of non-essential businesses due to COVID-19. And among those businesses deemed non-essential, liquor stores and retail marijuana dispensaries. Once the mayor saw how the people of Denver reacted to the announcement, it wasn't long before he was eating his words. KUNC's Alana Schreiber takes us back in time to the shortest prohibition in Denver's history. The year was 2020. The city, Denver, Colorado. Three, two, one. But the problem... Prohibition. When Mayor Hancock organized that press conference, a lot of people were pretty nervous about what was going to happen. Governor Polis had uh, just issued some restrictions on where people could go, uh, including with restaurants. And, and so folks were pretty on edge about what was going to be shut down, what wasn't. 
That's Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. Some call him a journalist for Westward, but I call him the culprit. So the question I asked at the press conference was, So dispensaries and liquor stores, are they considered essential? I didn't really know what to expect with the question um, in terms of how Hancock was going to answer it. I definitely wasn't joking, even though the mayor and those around him thought I was joking. <laughs> well, as far as the liquor store and I'm concerned, yes, very essential. And I definitely did not anticipate the outcome of the question and answer in terms of the chaos that ensued. But uh, I'm looking over at our city attorney, the liquor stores and dispensaries. Marty, you want to come up? Marley Bordowski with the city attorney's office. Great question. Liquor stores are not considered essential businesses, nor are recreational marijuana stores. Can you believe it? Well, the people of Denver sure did. There was a mad dash to these stores all across the city. Folks were desperate to get their hands on a bottle of Jack or an ounce of sour diesel before the shops closed up. It was a regular Monday, you know, not that busy. Ron Vaughn is co-owner and COO of Argonaut Liquor in Denver and a prohibition survivor. All of a sudden, uh, people started coming in the doors. We looked outside, there was a line, so we had a discussion about how do we control this uh, situation going on, so we ended up having to post people at the doors, so that one in and one out became the rule. The store was flooded. There was a line around the building. Shelves were raided. There was a news helicopter over the Argonaut. Citizens were panicked. People were literally freaking out, coming in and... Uh, eating boxes and just filling it. They probably didn't even drink. They just were afraid they weren't going to be able to get. And let's not forget the irony. You know, people were not really into the social distancing yet. So if his goal was to try and be safer, it was a clear miss. It was pandemonium on the streets of Denver. Once again, Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. It was kind of like a liquor and pot apocalypse was coming and everyone was trying to stock up before the apocalypse started. I don't think the mayor personally chose to deem liquor stores and pot shops as non-essential initially. It was really his chief of staff, Alan Salazar, and then a lawyer from the city attorney's office, Marley Burdovsky, who penned the stay-at-home order or the weekend prior. And I, I've been told by Salazar and Brodovsky that they were going back and forth until right before the press conference, do we make these essential? Do we make them non-essential? And then they settled on making them non-essential. And they didn't prep the mayor on getting questions from reporters about this specific issue. They, they really didn't see it as that big of an issue. But their plan had overlooked one grave factor. People wanted their liquor, and they wanted their pot. Argonaut Liquor on Colfax reported that sales went up 300%. Meanwhile, at the mayor's office. Alan Salazar, his phone was blowing up right away with pot shop and liquor store industry stakeholders and lobbyists who were saying, hey, this is a bad idea. You can't do this. People are freaking out. They turned on the TV and they saw the news helicopter hovering over Argonaut and just capturing that massive line that was wrapping around the streets. 
And so they quickly realized that something had gone terribly wrong. While Salazar wanted to wait and see how the panic played out, Mayor Hancock had seen enough. There was only one thing left to do. Alan Salazar, he didn't want the mayor's office to have to admit to making a mistake right away. But the mayor said, hey, we did this. We made a mistake. Let's let's just reverse this right away. Clearly, people consider these two businesses to be essential. And so that's what they ended up settling on after just a few hours. Just before 5 p.m., they came out with social media posts saying liquor stores and pot shops are are now essential again. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Joy replaced panic. A wave of calmness replaced a sea of chaos. And over at Argonaut, Ron Vaughn let out a sigh of relief. To Mayor Hancock's credit, he said, look, we made a mistake, let's change it. Uh, which I thought was very good. It was a very interesting day and a year full of interesting days. Looking back a year later, Connor is proud of his question that ignited the brief period of pandemonium. I asked the hard-hitting question of our elected officials, holding them to account, shining light on a dark situation, and ensuring that democracy didn't die in that moment. Although he seems to have learned an important lesson. We all have our vices and we're we're pretty attached to them. And so when we feel like someone is trying to curtail our ability to access our vices, we we get pretty anxious. So that was all pretty funny. And that's that's funny looking back on it. I really had no idea that asking this one question would set all that panic in motion. But then again, nobody's perfect. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Throughout much of the summer and fall of 2020, Colorado skies were heavily clouded by plumes of smoke as our state faced record-breaking wildfires. But despite the high volume of smoke and ash in the air, something which can complicate the production of many agricultural operations, it would seem that hemp farmers in Colorado didn't really experience impacts in the growth of their crops, at least according to the head of one Denver-based cannabis decontamination company. Still, drought conditions, the threat of even worse wildfires, and our changing climate overall has producers worried about what could be in store for the future of hemp. Dan Micah is a reporter with Biz West. He's been reporting on the effects of smoke and ash on Colorado hemp production and how many producers were spared from smoke-related issues following last year's wildfire season. So thinking back to the last year, Dan, and the wildfires in the state, it's hard for me to imagine that hemp crops at large weren't affected by smoke and ash. But you've heard otherwise in your reporting on this. Can you explain how wildfires impact the hemp plants on paper and then how is it that much of Colorado's crop was spared? On paper, there's not a whole lot that we exactly know about how wildfires and how a drier, hotter climate is going to affect these plants going forward. For right now, all we have is just some anecdotes from Oregon uh, saying that some hemp plants that were as close as eight miles towards a, a major wildfire site didn't really have any long-term effects in terms of the potency of the CBD it was producing or the structural integrity of its plants. All we heard from them and also from some 
uh, producers in Colorado is that some of the plants flowered a little bit early, and that is just to kind of get the more of the leaves spread out and to try and get more uh, sunlight in a situation where the ash was covering the smoke. So obviously more surface area means more ability to uh, to get the chlorophyll in action and to create that photosynthesis that actually creates the, the plant. And, and really, there wasn't a whole lot of hemp farms that were really in the the path of the wildfires directly either putting them at risk of being burnt or being over the direct plumes of smoke that you know covered northern Colorado for several days over the summer and early fall well Dan say that Colorado's hemp crops at large weren't spared what kind of issues would producers be facing right now and are these the kind of problems that they're thinking they might have to face if future wildfires do affect the crop we just really don't know at this point how these plants are going to react to a climate that is getting hotter and drier and supercharging the ability for wildfires to go from relatively controlled into the destructive forces of nature that we saw last summer. I mean, the state of Colorado has made it very clear that it's trying to prepare for the inevitability that wildfire seasons will get out of hand in in certain cases because just the climate is making it really easy for wildfires to burn really fast and to spread really fast. So I think right now it is an open question as to are are these crops in particular, are are they going to be sustainable? Are they going to be able to adapt to the changes that are going to be coming in the environment that Colorado provides for for agriculture in particular? With pretty much everything that's happening with with hemp and CBD, you know, ever since the, the plant was legalized across the country in 2018, it's kind of an open question, and we're, and we're kind of just learning this this industry and and the science behind it almost you know as we go, simply because you know for a while it was very hard to get clearance to actually study hemp and actually to study cannabis plants and figure out how they actually grow particularly in outdoor environments instead of the the grow houses and the the large underground operations that were used for a while to grow marijuana plants when you were talking to you know farmers and producers involved with the hemp plant and cbd what are they worried about in the future i mean they've got to be concerned about stuff like drought and wildfires as they kind of enter into this sort of new cash crop world one of the things I've heard is that, you know, even though Colorado has been in a drought for years and water continues to be probably the biggest driver of home prices, of it, it continues to be this very political thing, hemp really is not a, a very water-intensive crop. As part of why Colorado has promoted it so aggressively is that, you know, one, it doesn't take as much water to produce compared to, say, uh, corn or specialty fruits and vegetables that are outside the, the idea of, like, big agricultural uh, farms that take a lot of acreage. There's research here because Colorado has allowed research to go on um at certain levels, and there's already the, the market here because Colorado was, of course, the first state in the union to legalize cannabis uh, several years ago. So I think there still is going to be that emphasis on trying to beat out places like California or Oregon. I could imagine New York trying to get in on this. So I think Colorado's agricultural scene is still going to be pretty all in um, and, and really pushing hemp as a cash crop. But still, I don't think there's a there's a lot of research going on right now that will 
tell us you know how these crops are going to adapt uh, and how we can adapt the crops at the seed level to adapt to a changing climate. Dan Micah is a reporter with Biz West. Dan, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Henry. It can be easy to take water for granted. Drinking, showering, spring planting, it all happens without a second thought when supplies are plentiful. And in the arid West, scientists have a lot of different tools to figure out just how much water will be available every year. They're looking above ground at snowpack and river flow, but they're also taking measurements beneath the surface. From Aspen Public Radio, Alex Hager has more. I'm walking through a dense thicket of scrubby bushes up in the hills above Glenwood Springs. Ahead of me is Elise Osenga, who knows exactly the route to the scientific equipment we're out to find. So we're looking at about a two meter high little metal tripod with a lot of wires and boxes and equipment attached to it. Hidden in this patch of tangled branches is a soil moisture monitor. Osenga works for the Aspen Global Change Institute, gathering data from this station and 10 more just like it to get a sense of how much water is being held in the dirt. And knowing that helps figure out how much water will end up in streams and rivers and eventually in the supply that feeds the pipes in your home. I can't tell you what the rain is going to do, but I can tell you where we're starting out with soil moisture. Um, And snow scientists can tell you where we're starting out with snowpack, and that can help you to realize kind of what's coming ahead. It's not hard to see how snowpack plays a role in water availability. All that winter snow held up in the mountains, it melts and flows downhill until it's in streams and rivers. But there's a step in between. Some of it has to go through the ground to get there. And dirt can act like a sponge. If you have dry soils, snow melts in, you're not going to see as much runoff. But if you take a year where maybe you had the exact same snowpack, but you went in with really, really wet soils, those soils can't take up as much water. And so you're going to see a higher runoff from that same amount of snowpack. That is not the case this year because soil around the region is parched. So by the time snow starts melting this spring and summer, less of it will make its way to the streams that supply our pipes. That means water managers are stressed about soil moisture, especially in places that don't draw from huge reservoirs and pull straight from creeks. Brian DeMoncos is a hydrologist in charge of the Colorado Snow Survey. There's not always that storage to keep and and reserve water if you're anticipating not getting runoff that you might otherwise expect to have. DeMoncos oversees a network of monitors across the region. He says data on soil moisture doesn't go back far enough to identify any long-term patterns, but in the last handful of years... We're seeing that there is a trend of below normal precipitation during the summer and that the soil moisture is getting quite dry, even with normal precipitation or snowpack right now on top of those dry soils, we would have below normal runoff. That's especially bad news for one group that cares an awful lot about water and dirt, farmers. I'm talking to seed researcher Casey Piscura on a farm right near the banks of the Colorado River. When you are coming into a season like like this one where we see you know, really uh, lower than normal snowpack. You know, the the amount of water that can be held in the soil is essential to being more efficient with the water that we have when we know that it's going to be limiting. Keeping soil healthy is a delicate balance. Piscura pays attention to what soil is made out of. That has a bearing on how well it can hold water. And then when it comes time to irrigate plants, he's factoring in how much moisture is already in the soil. How are we going to maintain that moisture level before the irrigation starts and consider that? So a lot of times we'll actually use um, 
tarping over our gardens and that'll hold the moisture that's there until we're ready to go into crops. And keeping close tabs on soil moisture will likely get even more important as the years roll on. Piscura and other farmers are cautious of a change in climate, drying out soil, and turning previously fertile land into deserts. Elise Osanga, who runs that monitor near Glenwood Springs, she says farmers were looking at this kind of thing long before scientists ever started keeping track. But now, especially now, the dirt is providing clues that go way beyond farming. This year in particular, everyone in Colorado is kind of standing with their hair on end thinking, you know, are we going to be in a real serious drought next year? Data from Osenga's monitors and elsewhere shows that conditions are drier than usual. Snowpack levels throughout the Colorado River Basin are slightly below average. On top of that, low rivers and, you guessed it, dry soil are not helping. Without improvement, that could lead to water shortages and increased risk of wildfire. I'm Alex Hager in Aspen, Colorado. That story is a part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River Basin, produced by Aspen Public Radio, distributed by KUNC, and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we get an update from our arts reporter on the highly anticipated return of live events here in the state. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.